Hey, I'm Darren Parmenter from CSU Extension in La Plata County. And I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. And we're back on The Garden Guys, where we help solve some of the mysteries of gardening in the Southwest. Today may not be a mystery solver day, but today may be, you know, we talked about some of the opportunities that we're going to have with this show. And one of the opportunities we wanted to showcase um, was the local farmers here in Southwest Colorado, right? Like, it's a hard job. This is a tough job to do. So we want to kind of highlight what they do. So we're super excited to be able to go visit a farm today. It's a field trip. Right. We'll be doing some field recording at Lindley Dixon's Adobe House Farm. Yeah, up in Animus Valley. Animus Valley. And Lindley's been, this is her second or third location, I think. Yeah, she's been, uh, I'm not going to say Lindsay's been old timer, but she's been farming here in La Plata County for uh, a number of years. So, And she's had some hard locations. And I think this location in the valley is uh, pretty prime for yeah. her. And she's got some, you know, Adobe House or Pete have got these huge uh, greenhouses and hoop houses. And they're growing a ton of food. We hope to get some wisdom from her and... and how to do it right, and uh, what are some of the challenges that I'm sure she shares with most of the growers here in, in the Four Corners. Yeah, she's growing the same crops you're growing, right? That we're all growing, and she has probably the same exact challenges. One of our challenges is to say, hey, I'm going to spend a little bit more money to buy a local tomato rather than a tomato I may buy from Mexico or California or Florida. They've got dozens of farmers here in southwest Colorado who are growing a lot of food and they're doing it really well. And we're going to highlight many of those farmers on the show as we move along. Yeah, that's going to be a great opportunity for you to hear how your challenges may be the same as Lindley and Pete's at Adobe House or as some other farmer we highlight and how they are doing it right and how you as a locavore. I'll, I'll go word of the week. Locavore is a very important term. It may have been overused a few years ago, but it's still relevant in the way that you choose your local food. Right. So I want to be able to support these local farmers. Because one, it's another business that I can support. But two, we go back to that tomato. It tastes really good. It's phenomenal. And it's nutrient-dense. They picked those tomatoes that you're eating on a Saturday. They picked them that week before, right? Right. And that's the way that you get the most nutrient-dense, the healthiest food you can get in your plate. Now, what's cool about the Four Corners region in the past several years has been supporting more and more growers and getting their produce into restaurants and grocery stores. And now you can see it. You can see when you're shopping, hey, this was grown locally. Or at a restaurant on the menu, these XYZ vegetables were grown yeah. locally. Ask your server. Yeah. You know, challenge that restaurant. Hey, what do you guys grow? What do you guys have on the menu that's locally that's grown? Local. You're yeah. not here to put the server in an awkward position, but you're here to say like, hey, I may want to buy that dish that has local tomatoes from Adobe House um, because I know it's going to taste probably better than if it had tomatoes from somewhere else. Well, now you've got me looking forward to asking some questions to Lindley. Should we jump in the chopper and head over? Yeah, I think it's back on the back pad out yeah. there. I can't hear you. Here we go. Hi, Tom. Hi, Darren. We are at Adobe House Farm, and we're about four acres that we only cultivate about two acres a year and shrinking because we find that as we get better at what we do, that we actually need less space to do it. And so we've got three tunnels that we're walking towards right now. These are the high tunnels. And then we have one completely uh, climate controlled greenhouse that is new in the last year. 
Lindley, what's the difference between a high tunnel and a greenhouse? A high tunnel uh, does not have any climate control in it other than passive things that you might do to protect the plants. So our high tunnels, well, two of them have roll up sides. So when it gets too hot in there in the morning, we roll the sides up. One of them has a roll down side. And now we've decided that we're only going to get roll down sides because we have chickens and they climb into the tunnels when you roll them up. But when you roll down the sides from the kind of the head height, that allows the air to come through, but the chickens can't get in. So that was a huge adjustment. And then the climate controlled greenhouse is a Zimmerman tunnel. We bring in air from outside, but it goes through a pad fan system and it's humidifying it and it cools the greenhouse down too because it's pulling in outside air. So the plants can be at a perfect temperature and humidity at all times in the greenhouse. So that was a really long answer to what's the difference between a hoop house and a greenhouse. But essentially it's climate control in the greenhouse versus uh, just kind of passively let in cold air from outside and then button it up at night. And then you might, to keep it warm, you might have multiple inner layers in the hoop house as opposed to heating the tunnel. You're looking like it's all about season extension here. It is because we found that everybody had produce. All the farmers had produce at the same time. And so you were really competitive with each other and it would kind of drop the prices and you wouldn't sell everything that you grew. And then all of a sudden there was nothing. So that was really frustrating for the customers too. So we figured for long-term viability, it would be better to try to figure out how to season extend. We could actually make a price that we needed in order to survive, um, you know, have it be a good income for our family to keep doing this, but also so that customers in Durango could get produce more than three months out of the year. Do you grow stuff in the field as well? Have you always been this high tech? Well, so we started out renting land. So we couldn't put in infrastructure and feel like we had a long-term situation there. I also have always just wanted to put in perennials and build soil health over a lifetime. Because uh, that, that, that is kind of a lifetime process. You know, we add a lot of organic matter every year. But even after being five years on this property that we own now, um, you know, it's, it's, it takes a long time, especially in these dry climates, for the soil to kind of break down and build compost. And so that's something that I really feel strongly that farmers should have either long-term leases or own their land because then they're really invested in putting in perennials, putting in infrastructure, and soil health. So yes, we do have crops outside. We have a, a north plot where we grow uh, successive greens. And then in the south plot, there's two acres down there where we grow all of the heat-loving stuff. So in the north plot with the greens, we'll plant this week and we're protecting it with Rima, even though we're gonna get a 20 degree night. Uh, those things will be fine. Um, and then the south plot, we don't plant until June when it looks like we might have um, not have any more frost, although we usually maybe once out of every five years get hit. We do put uh, all the heat loving stuff in the south field. It seems to be a little bit warmer down there than where the north field is even. And uh, that's where all like the cucurbits and tomatoes and peppers uh, will go for the short season. You tend to use some really good traditional organic methods here that we, I'm sure our listeners have heard Darren and I go off on you know, the importance of compost and diversity in the soil organisms and all the stuff we go through for kind of domestic horticulture, but you're doing that at scale. So you seem to 
advocate that as an important part of how you grow food. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny to hear at scale um, for three acres, but um, well, yes, for Durango, audience, we yeah. are we are at you're scale. Big, you're big time here. Yeah. <laughs> I have 64 square feet, so you're much bigger than me. <laughs> so we, one of the biggest things we did that I was really unsure about when we moved here, but I do not regret it, is if you look at the north plot, that is actually, all our rows are there, but what color is it right now? Nice color of green. It's green, and that is because we only uh, tilled under the pasture that was here in strips that we were going to then plant at. And I'd never seen any production farms do that. I see them, like, kind of till these big, huge spaces and then um, plant cover crops. And all those things are great, but, like, it really is difficult in our short season to make sure everything's covered and also get in, like, the winter squash, for example, you know, we're harvesting that in October, and then there's not a lot of time to get a cover crop going. And so I was really nervous that we would not be able to uh, farm this way. But I have, I have been so grateful that we have kept our aisles where we walk green. Because even without, we don't have any overhead irrigation. It's all drip. They have stayed green somehow. Um, so, so that, I would say, soil health-wise is, is kind of the best thing that we did, is we didn't till a huge section. And so what we do when we plant a row is we mow that aisle and we shoot all of the clippings into the area. We add compost. Uh, at, in the falls, the whole farm gets leaves because we're lucky enough to get um, all of the landscaping material, mostly leaves from the fall. And we're able to cover all the beds and then till in some of that fresh material from the aisles. Uh, we do bring in... Um, table to farm compost and that we use in our tunnels especially uh, because it's you know it's more expensive than the stuff that we create but it's higher in nitrogen than everything that we do and we hope that the outdoor stuff gets nitrogen from the green material that we're, we're um, kind of mowing and then tilling under about two inches um, just incorporating that organic matter into the top two inches of the soil. So we have a lot of on-farm diversity that isn't what we plant. So we actually have these ditches that come in and we intentionally don't mow around them and see them as insectaries. Uh, we'll just stab at invasive plants um, and try to just, you know, let whatever else comes up naturally be there. And so I think that diversity is really important because we do have a really nice um, beneficial, uh, like if aphids are there, I always just kind of like, it's okay, you know, the beneficials are going to come, and they do, um, and I, I hope and I imagine that they come from, you know, a lot of the buffer areas that we keep kind of wild and flowering, because I know those beneficials like a lot of things flowering, so that's one thing, but we also uh, grow fewer crops, but still about 10 different things, and having the greens um, come in is kind of an even throughout the year it's kind of an even income for us and then um, having you know a little bit more intense of a summer season so we can hire college kids who like to kind of learn to see what we're doing here and then um, our tunnel our green I should say our greenhouse we found earns more than all of our outdoor space so for us that was a huge um, just security financial security to be able to make sure that we were kind of earning a steady income throughout so yes it's about 
um, figuring out work-life balance and making sure that we can afford to come back and farm another year because the mortgage is high here. You know, this is very prime uh, property so close to Durango. We're so grateful to have it, but um, it does put pressure on us to make sure that we are, are good farmers. And you had to pivot during COVID. How did that work out? You know, it, COVID was really good to small farmers. And because all of a sudden people didn't want to go into city market, they wanted to shop somewhere that they felt more safe. So our when it hit in April, um, our tunnels had just come in, and so we had all of these greens. And normally we kind of have trouble selling them all because it's too much, and so we have to go down to a lower price to wholesale a lot of them. But James Ranch was on fire. Um, April, May, June, pretty much that whole summer. And, but especially in April when we had all of these greens ready. And for the first time, we figure when we sell greens at wholesale, it's kind of just a break even thing. But for the first time we could direct market and not have to kind of lose any of that middleman um, income. And it was just awesome. I mean, we sold everything at retail value that year and we sold everything. Sometimes, you know, some of it's going to the chickens. So that was so exciting, uh, I think, for us to see what it would be like if it were like that all the time, where people just really wanted local produce. And I'm a little sad to say it's, it's gone away since COVID, and I wish it would come back. Just that frenzy for local food, that was pretty awesome during COVID. So we pivoted in that. We actually stepped up our production. So to be clear, <laughs> you don't want COVID to come back. You just want the frenzy attached to COVID to come back. That, okay. That's much okay. better. Okay. But yes, thank yeah. you. Well, it's odd that to, to get people to really get enthusiastic about local agriculture, it takes something like COVID to drive fear them. factor. The fear yeah. factor. But yeah. what it, it seems so natural to want to go buy food from your local farmer. How do we get more people to do that? I think that's, uh, well, see, it's tough. I think we have the wrong values as a society. We value efficiency. And so we just automatically think the cheapest is best because it's, it's the most efficient. They've figured it out. And I think whenever there's a um, disruption into that system, like COVID, or say a war or a fuel shortage or anything like that, that we're going to have lots of disruptions into the future. We've had them in the past. Um, I, I think local farms are just more resilient. So I think there's a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. And COVID was an example of where maybe we're not as efficient as a big California lettuce farm, but we were able to be here and actually still produce food, you know, through that disruption. Can we go look at some food? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, let's start in a hoop house that has nothing in it, because then we can kind of see the process. So this hoop house is about to be worked uh, that two inch organic matter um, in this week. And so we, we always prep it with about a half inch of, of compost. And then we try to wa water it really well so that, you know, we can just mix in. You can kind of see that we got to get the native soil and mix that in with, with the compost. And so this bed uh, or th these tunnels will have uh, onions and peas. So these are all cold loving stuff. And tell us, what else do you have growing in here right now in this uh, third week of April? Uh, just some cucumbers, and we've got basil that's going to be transplanted into that last row over there. So basil, cucumbers, and tomatoes. Our radio listeners, we're standing in a, uh, a hoop house here, and this is what, the third week of April, and we have tomatoes that are almost knee-high and starting to flower. So you can be a little bit jealous of the folks here at Adobe House. Well, you can buy our tomatoes.
is what you can do. <laughs> and we sell a lot of starts at the farmer's market. We'll sell a lot of starts and then uh, many people kill them and then we sell them to them again. So don't do that. Protect or, them. Or support Lindley and the folks at Adobe House. And <laughs> keep killing your keep plants. Keep killing your plants and root for that late season frost. It's so hard to grow here without protection, but put those little milk bottles, circle your tomatoes and throw, you know, even a sheet over them and that, that'll go a long way. Yes. The problem is if you play it too early, they get so big that protecting them in one of those wall of waters or with the milk jugs, they, the tops get frosted. Yeah. So if that happens to you, just click off, clip off the top and, and, you know, you'll have a bushier tomato, but they'll still produce a lot. So in this high tunnel, we actually don't plant as densely as we do in the greenhouse. Uh, this is a 100-foot-long tunnel, and we, we put only one row of tomatoes in each 3-foot-wide bed. And you'll see when we go to the greenhouse, we actually do two rows. So we actually had 40 feet of growth on our uh, greenhouse tunnels, and we only had like 25 feet of growth in our hoop house. So that's the difference in yield and production that you're going to get from a controlled climate or a controlled greenhouse, especially here because... Tomatoes like high humidity. They like about 70%. When you roll down these sides, all of that dry air just comes in and the stomates just close up. And so that, you know, reduces photosynthesis and those plants are not as productive. So we graft every tomato and that doubles the yield. And then when you go into the greenhouse and you have that higher humidity controlled, so we'll have like about 75 degrees. It won't get too high. And then the, these tunnels get way too hot. Um, and then they're also too dry. So when you have that controlled climate, you can double your yield again. Should we switch seasons and go into the greenhouse? Yeah, let's check out what summer looks like, huh? In April. Do you want me to turn the fans off? Boy, that would help. Okay, yeah. yeah. Just do it temporarily. Just I'll just do an override. Hold on. All right, so you can see the difference. You have stepped it up a notch now. <laughs> Isn't this awesome? We are now at almost, what, three to four feet tall tomatoes. This is got, July, right? Yeah, I got to take my jacket off. Maybe August. <laughs> put the flip-flops on. So what do you got going on in here? So these are all tomatoes. This is a 34 by 100 Zimmerman tunnel, and you can see how much higher the trellising is. And we have pipe rail heating in here, so actually hot water runs through these pipes. But the brilliant thing about having pipe rail is even if you don't have a hot water system, everything um, just happens kind of at height level. This has been a really important shift for our older farming bodies don't like, like our backs go out pretty much every season. And so it's been wonderful to work kind of looking up. And so you've, you've got these harvest carts, but then you also have this um, hydraulic cart that lifts you up because you have to do the work at 12 feet high. Every week, these plants grow about two feet. And so up at 12 feet tall, which you should definitely come back and see the plants when it's a jungle in here and they're 12 feet tall. So every week we need to lower at 12 feet tall. And so this hydraulic cart lets you kind of just move along and do your work. So if you're going to be doing this and putting in the controlled climate and you do that much work kind of uh, every week up high, I would say even put in the pipes, even if you don't have a hot water system and you have a traditional modine heater, still put the pipes in to run your carts. It's worth it. So this is a relatively large investment for you all at Adobe House. You know, what was kind of the impetus behind kind of rolling the dice on this, you know, and then how does something like this potentially get funded? 
So I never would have done this if I didn't have someone giving me excellent advice. So I am lucky enough that I knew a farmer from the East Coast through the Real Organic Project, which is my off-farm work, that um, he had been doing, he's probably the best organic tomato grower in the country, and he was giving me advice on how to do this. There's no way, I, I wouldn't have trusted myself to put in the right equipment. And I built a greenhouse when I first moved here, and um, it, I made a lot of stupid mistakes. Uh, it was a lot of investment, and I felt like it, I didn't make the right decisions. So. I could learn from someone who was 40 years into their career, had made all the mistakes themselves, and could just, I could skip all of those mistakes and just go right to doing the thing that he's been doing now for a long time. So I had really good advice. Um, I also ran out of money halfway <laughs> through the project, and so relied on You're the- You're not the first farmer to ever <laughs> say that. Or any project, right? No, it, any it takes twice as long yes. and, and uh, costs twice as much as you think it's going to. So. I relied on the, I, I was actually really desperate um, because in order to make the money back that we had put in, I had to finish the project in time for last year's season. And uh, it, it was kind of like a um, chicken and egg thing, right? We needed to plant the crop in order to make the money back. So I got a four corner slow money loan. Where do you market all these tomatoes? Where do these go eventually when they come to fruit? We go to Farmer's Market to market the tomatoes, uh, James Ranch up the road, and Nature's Oasis has been a huge outlet for us. So we are really grateful for that because we were actually worried that we wouldn't be able to sell all of our crop. What kind of fertilizers do you use to grow all this food? That is something we're really proud of. We only use compost, and that's when I was saying we, we sprinkle it on lightly for every two or three weeks so that it's getting kind of an even... Uh, fertility throughout the season but that's really rare a lot of farmers depend really heavily on liquid feed and it's not an environmentally sound thing to do really no matter what source of feed whether it's synthetic fertilizer there's a lot of uh, energy that goes into creating those synthetic fertilizers and even if it's an organic source uh, if you look into the source of that liquid fertility it's uh, robbing the ocean either by being fish fertilizer or uh, you know kelp or seaweed so we're really proud that we have all locally available waste that comes in through that table to farm compost throughout the farm nothing is liquid feed and then you're feeding the soil food web that's right we're cycling all of that organic matter through the soil yeah our variety selection we've got uh, eight different varieties in this tunnel this is a huge tip we only grow leaf mold resistant tomatoes. So all the other farmers out here should listen to this too because our tunnels, uh, for whatever the reason, this, this dry climate leaf mold, it's cladosporium, it, this is the fungus that gets us. And it's really hard to figure out what all the different fungal and bacterial tomato diseases there are, but this is the one that really was killing our plants at the end of the season. How and did you it, figure that out? How, how did you figure <laughs> out, like, oh, this is this fancy lot of sports? It's the one time I used my degree. So I am actually, yeah. a, I have a PhD in plant pathology in tomato diseases. And that was really irrelevant for actually being a farmer. But the one time that I used it was to figure out what disease was killing our tomatoes every year. And it was a lot of, you know, uh, detective work. 
after several seasons, I finally figured it out, and leaf mold is it. So I feel really confident about that answer. So like eight years worth of there, schooling yeah, yeah, to, yeah. for that answer. So go to ahead. my children, this is why you go to college, is so you can answer that one question <laughs> after eight years. You never know when that degree is going to be handy. But honestly, that is a that was a huge bonus for, for us to actually figure that one out. So I'm giving everybody a, a big tip there. So to continue that tip, what are the kinds of resistant tomatoes that you grow? So unfortunately, only the indeterminates have leaf mold resistance. And I think that has something to do with linkage if you're kind of a genetic buff that you know indeterminate and leaf mold resistant must be really close together on the chromosomes because they can't seem to separate those two traits so uh, all the determinants are gonna have leaf mold and I actually really liked in the high tunnels growing a determinant because you could just throw a cage around it you didn't have to do any of this fancy pruning lower and leaning stuff and they would all ripen at once in volume and so it was really nice to have kind of an earlier heavy yield for farmer's market and stuff in July. So that's what we used to do. And then I just said, we can't, we can't um, grow these determinants anymore. Leaf mold is, is too bad for us. So it, it's caused by cool, humid conditions, which happened every night in the tunnels. Yeah. yeah, there were aphids, but I think having that diversity of the cold season winter greens and carrots in here helped confuse them a little bit. So that goes back to your diversity point earlier, Tom. Great. I don't want to take too much of your time because I know you're... This is uh, fun, right? Uh, like, I love this. <laughs> I don't know if I have much more to say, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at, uh, let's see, five, five, we got 30 minutes or more and we only need 20, but and Good. most of what you're saying is very usable. Um, I think you tap most of it. In general... How can, should we ask uh, the audience how they, how, uh, how to support your local farmer in general when they're thinking about buying food? What's the stages of how you want them to think? Uh, yeah, when you're, when you're trying to support your local farmer, the best thing to do is go to the farmer's market because there's no middle person uh, kind of taking a little piece of that pie. But uh, often farmers grow more than can be sold at the farmer's market. So you need to do more. And there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on in the marketplace. Describe greenwashing real quick. So you go to a restaurant and it says local produce on the menu and they don't really say what the name of the farm is. So there's not a lot of accountability and you don't really know if it's just a token purchase once a year or if it's like a really good customer. So when you go out to a restaurant, you know, ask your waiter, you know, please tell me what is available locally on your menu and what farm it comes from because then there's some accountability because in a small town like this we can be like no those aren't our tomatoes and they're saying there are tomatoes so uh, asking the waiter lets the restaurant know that that's important to you and um, you know that you're willing to support that restaurant because they're doing that and also then there's the accountability factor in a town, uh, well, even the larger towns. When you, when you know the name of the farm, you know, you're, you're usually able to say, is the farm actually producing that right now? And, and even find out whether they're actually selling to that restaurant. So that accountability is important. And one of those beauties of the farmer's market is that I can go up to your booth and I can talk to you guys. I mean, that's the reason my family hates going to the farmer's market with me is because I <laughs> tend to talk to all of them. But it's that b ability to say, Okay, it's kind of like I can have that chance to ask my farmer how they grow, what they grow, all those beautiful parts of, of being able to have a better understanding and maybe a better security of where my food's coming from. 
and they'll often let you come onto the farm and, and see what they do. Be sensitive to the fact that they're busy and you might have to just kind of bend over and doing whatever they're doing, you know, weed with them, and, but they'll talk to you about what's going on on their farm and you can see it in action. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for letting us come on the farm today and see all yeah, this great you, stuff Lindley. that you're doing. Anytime. Thanks you for spreading the word. Well, that was a pretty impressive spot, huh? I'm amazed at that greenhouse, how much of a big addition that is. It's pretty cool. You, know, you always think like as farmers continue to succeed and, you know, grow, the way that they're growing here is by growing smarter, not just growing larger. They've reduced the amount of growing space that they have, but they've just made it that much more efficient. Yeah, and some really nice high tunnels. And it was interesting to see the difference in the dry heat in the high tunnels versus that incredible moisture in the greenhouse. Yeah, it's like if you're going to retire in Arizona or if you want to retire in Florida. Which yeah. one do you choose? In Hawaii, it's what it felt like to me. <laughs> yeah. But as a reminder, they, they'll start growing in February, which is pretty amazing. That's when we're still skiing and digging out of snow. Um, and they'll have that first market. So the first Durango Farmer's Market is going to be May 14th, I think, around that time. So go find Adobe House Farms there and, and talk to them and talk to any other farmer that's producing food this early in the season and support them. Throw them some bucks. And then when you find that some of the produce might be not as perfectly shaved sometimes as the stuff in the, the filtered stuff that you find in the stores, you get what you get. You don't throw a fit, especially in public. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining the Garden Guys. Take care.